$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code GAME to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. Hi, I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Sioux Falls is the most populous city in the state, with just about 200,000 residents, which is about 30% of the state's total population. The city is in the far southeast corner of the state, just a few miles from its borders with Minnesota and Iowa. The city was built on the banks of the majestic Big Sioux River, and its name comes from the river's waterfalls that were created about 14,000 years ago during the last ice age. An average of 7,400 gallons of water drop 100 feet over the falls each second. California could actually use that right about now. Definitely. In the past 10 years, downtown Sioux Falls has become a point of pride for its residents with unique restaurants numerous entertainment options, a thriving art scene, and a strong sense of community. But in 1995, the gruesome murder of one young mom had residents questioning just how well they knew their neighbors. In the early morning hours of Sunday, July 9, 1995, 25-year-old Mary Kay Ross was asleep in her third-floor, two-bedroom apartment that she shared with her 13-month-old daughter, Christian. Mary was originally from La Junta, Colorado, where all of her family still lived, and she had moved to Sioux Falls two years prior to attend college. Mary was a single mom and a student at National College in Sioux Falls, working towards an Associate of Arts degree in paralegal studies. At approximately 4 a.m., Mary awoke as she was being brutally attacked. She was being stabbed repeatedly on her head and upper body. Mary fought back with everything she had, managing to fight off the attack enough to get from her bedroom and into the kitchen, even managing a 911 call. Sioux Falls police arrived just minutes later to find a bloody and brutalized Mary on her couch, barely alive. Her 13-month-old daughter, Christian, was found awake in her crib but unharmed. Paramedics rushed Mary to Sioux Valley Hospital, where she was pronounced dead. Sioux Falls Police Lieutenant Gary Folkerts said that the knife police believed was used in the stabbing was found in the apartment, along with a massive amount of blood. The lieutenant declined to say how many times Mary was stabbed and what kind of knife was used. He also said that it was too early to tell if any items were missing from the apartment. Police were looking for a red Dodge Daytona 
that had been seen in the apartment complex's parking lot early Sunday morning. The lieutenant said they wanted to talk to the occupants of the car to see if they'd seen anything. Police immediately questioned residents of the apartment building, and only one person had anything to add. Amy DeJong, who lived two floors below Mary on the first floor of the apartment building, said that early Sunday morning she was watching a movie when she heard what she thought was a wrestling match going on above her. But she knew that the second-floor apartment directly above hers was empty. It was not until she heard what happened to Mary that she realized she must have heard what had happened in Mary's apartment. Amy had a roommate, and she was asleep that night, and the roommate said that she didn't wake up and hadn't heard anything. I did notice that when I was doing research for this, there was precious little in the newspaper immediately after the murder. The police were just holding all their information very close to the vest. The next day, Mary's family arrived from Colorado to begin the process of being awarded guardianship of Mary's daughter, Christian, who was under the care of the Department of Social Services. Even though the police were not offering any comments to the press on possible suspects or motives, they did say that they found the owner of the red Dodge Daytona. The police said they determined that the occupants of the car had not been involved in Mary's murder, nor did they have any information to give. Two days after Mary's murder, Minnehaha County Corner. <laughs> I know, like when I, it's like when I was doing re- research, I was like Minnehaha Chattahoochee. There are some some names that are just fun to say. <laughs> the Minnehaha County Coroner, Dr. Brad Randall, would not release any additional details about Mary's death except to confirm that she had been stabbed and did not appear to have been raped. Although residents were concerned for their safety without knowing why this young woman was so savagely killed, Sioux Falls Police Captain Bill Hoyer said that they were withholding detailed information about the crime because they had knowledge of things that only the perpetrator would know and they did not want to compromise any aspect of their investigation by revealing critical evidence to the press. Captain Hoyer would not comment on whether Christian's father, Aaron Enright, was a suspect in Mary's murder. He would also not say whether or not the residents of Sioux Falls needed to be concerned that a killer or killers were at large. Instead, he encouraged residents to just simply be watchful. One of Mary's neighbors who did not want to be named said that many of the complex's residents thought that the murderer had to have been someone Mary knew. This person did not believe it was a random crime. He reasoned that a random attacker is more likely to choose a first-floor apartment rather than a third-floor apartment simply to make getting in and out much easier. That's very true. I know. I was going to say, like, all right, that's logical. Gavin DeBecker, the gift of fear. Yeah. He also noted that it looked like someone had used a key to get into Mary's apartment because the lock and the door frame had not been damaged. I wonder if he's doing a true crime podcast these days. (laughs) This guy's a mini sleuth. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. A week after Mary's death, the local newspaper, The Argus Leader, ran a story written by journalist Kevin Wooster that reported the manager of the apartment building where Mary Ross had been killed had been fired. Police found manager Watson Lewing's fingerprints in Mary's apartment and subsequently determined that he had a criminal record. Lewing told police he had been in Mary's apartment that day to hang draperies and unclog a drain. By the way, Watson Lewing went by Louie Lewing. 
All righty then. <laughs> Honestly, better than Watson. Louie Louie. I like that. <laughs> Louie Louie said that the property management group he worked for would not tell him why he was being fired, but asked him to turn over his keys, radio, and other company equipment and told him he had five days to move. Lewing believed he'd been fired because he'd lied on his job application about prior convictions in Louisiana. That's always a good way to get yourself fired. Mm-hmm. Two were drug convictions, and one was a misdemeanor child abuse charge that Lewing claimed was a result of a nasty divorce. Lewing added that he had been placed on probation for the crimes and never served jail time. Almost two weeks after Mary Ross's murder, Sioux Falls Mayor Gary Hansen authorized the Sioux Falls police to offer a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the person or persons responsible for Mary's death. On Wednesday, July 26th, 17 days after her murder, a crowded funeral was held for Mary Ross in her hometown of La Junta, Colorado, at the United Methodist Church. After very little information had been shared with the public, about Mary Ross's murder and the investigation, three weeks after her death, Sioux Falls Police Chief Terry Satterley shockingly announced that they had arrested five men. Holy cow. Like, they really were keeping their cards close to the vest. When I saw the timeline, like how the chronology of all of this played out, it was shockingly fast. It really was. But also, we didn't see any leaks in the papers. No, you didn't. But it was funny. Once the arrest happened and the police started talking... Suddenly you saw the timeline of when people were interviewed and how many interviews, you know, they They had had. done. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like all of these guys were interviewed prior to the arrest. According to Kevin Woster, writing for the Argus Leader, Chief Satterley said that about 10 days prior to this announcement, their investigation revealed that Mary had been the intended victim and the five men arrested had played different roles in carrying out the horrific crime. Three were charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. The other two were charged with conspiracy to commit murder and accessory after the fact. Chief Satterley said that investigators had uncovered the motive for the murder, but would not discuss it at the time. He also said he would not reveal the relationship between Mary Ross and any of the men who had been charged, nor would he reveal whether or not all of the men had been in Mary's apartment the night she'd been killed. Chief Satterley did provide a brief background on each of the men who had been charged. The following three were charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Robert Poppin was 22, a native to Sioux Falls, and had prior felony convictions. Eric Kuhn was 19, from Los Angeles, and had only been in Sioux Falls for six months at the time of the killing. Robert Power was 21 and from Ohio, and he had been in Sioux Falls for two to three years. He had a prior felony conviction and an outstanding warrant at the time of his arrest. Charged with conspiracy to commit murder and an accessory after the fact was Michael Smith. He was 21 and had prior felonies and had served time at the South Dakota State Penitentiary. At the time of his arrest, he was on intensive probation, which I had to look up, and what it means in South Dakota is that adult probation plans are created based on whether a person is assessed as a medium risk, high risk, or intensive risk to reoffend. And I would say Michael Smith 
showed them that their system worked pretty well. Right, exactly. <laughs> their powers of prediction were amazing. I know. <laughs> Charged as an accessory after the fact was Walter Reed Craft Jr., who was 18. He was from Sioux Falls, and even at 18, he had a prior weapons conviction. Three of the men, Poppin, Coon, and Smith, lived together. The day after Chief Satterley's announcement, journalist Mike Troutman with the Argus Leader wrote that all five men were charged with planning the July 9th murder of Mary Ross down to detailed drawings of her apartment. State's attorney Dave Nelson cited state-adopted ethics codes that prevented him from discussing the motive, but said that he and Chief Satterley knew why they did it. That sounds like a blow-off. What well, it also sounds like a, we know and you don't. I mean, doesn't it? Like, we know, but we don't have to tell you. Right. I'm sure he was being asked. and I'm sure, but you know, I just feel like, like it was a sassy yeah. remark. Well, th- this guy, every time I was reading newspaper articles, oh, he was Kathy quoted. Oh, had a reaction. Yeah. I was like, you know what? Walk over here so I could slap your face. Like, he was so... Um, what's the word? Just self-aggrandizing and grandstanding all the time. And very quippy. He liked to have the one, like, drop the mic line. The police announced that Mary was stabbed 16 times in the head and neck with two steak knives while she was in bed. The attackers then apparently left for some period of time before returning and stabbing her again. Robert Power was charged as the mastermind behind Mary's murder. His wife, Amy Power, was close friends with Mary. In fact, Amy's brother was the father of Mary's daughter, Christian. When Amy was having marital difficulties, Mary allowed Amy and her child to stay with her and Christian. According to Mary's relatives, Amy shared with Mary the fact that Amy's marriage was deteriorating, and that Mary believed that Amy was likely in an abusive relationship with her husband. According to court records, the criminal complaint against the five men stated that Robert Power had approached Michael Smith about two weeks before Mary's death and offered him $10,000, or two pounds of meth, to kill Mary. Smith, Uh, I know. What? I know. Every single thing I read about this case had some type of comment about meth. And so my distinct impression is that these five defendants were definitely involved in the meth subculture. And you know. and it was probably a huge problem in Sioux Falls at the time. Oh, it was a huge problem in Sioux Falls. I read an article in the paper that said between, let me think about this. I don't want to get this wrong. From 1991 to 1995... The number of methamphetamine arrests in Sioux Falls had risen dramatically. And basically, between 91 and 95, the amount of meth confiscated during arrests, like the amount of meth seized, in 1995, it was 58 times greater than what it had been in 1991. Wow. That's insane. I think that rural towns, from what I read, suffered a lot more with the rise of meth in the beginning because... When you were cooking meth, you needed to be out in big open areas because it was so easy to smell it. Yeah. So in the late 90s, early 2000s, I worked for a member of Congress in Washington, D.C. I do remember that. The county that he represented in California was actually at the time the largest number of meth labs per capita. And he actually wasn't in all that rural an area, but it was just in Southern California 
that's where you had to go. Thank you, San Bernardino. <laughs> it was the IE. We like yeah. to call it the Inland Empire. Exactly. I think they named that themselves. It's the 909. Exactly. Which is the area code. <laughs> so when we were in high school and college, there was a radio station in L.A. called K-Rock. It was K-R-O-Q. And well, it's still there. Well, it is still there. Yeah. But they had a morning show at the time. It was Kevin and Bean. And they actually had a segment every now and then that yes. was called <laughs> Mock the 909. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I went and worked for a congressman from there. So exactly. <laughs> I kept that to myself. And Riverside actually has a very cute downtown, by the way. It does. I, I do like downtown Riverside. So getting back to the story. So Michael Smith was offered, again, $10,000 or two pounds of meth to kill Mary. He turned it down, saying he didn't want to commit murder, but agreed to connect power with two people who would kill Mary. Oh, it's good to have friends. Yeah, exactly. So he turns to his two roommates, Poppin and Coon, and told them, <laughs> that sounds like a Poppin and Coon. It sounds like they fight crime. It's exactly. like a TV show. <laughs> or a band. I don't know. Well, it's totally like, anyway. Or a biscuit. Like Poppin' Fresh. <laughs> <laughs> I used to love those. <laughs> she still does. My, my brother, Matt would make those a lot. Like, He's the one like who's going to save biscuits. us in the zombie apocalypse, exactly. just to remember. <laughs> and and snack and cakes. He liked making snack and cakes. And which, he was also the hoarder of cereal, of the totally good cereal. of the good cereal, the good sugar cereal. Yes. Anyway, okay. So Smith connects Powers to his roommates and tells his roommates that they will get $10,000 each, but that he would take a cut of their money, like 1500 or two grand. Like a finder's fee. Exactly. So around this time, Power gives... The key to Mary Ross's apartment to Smith. Smith, in turn, gives the key to Poppin and Coon. Now, we do not know for sure how Power got the key. What we do know is that Mary Ross had given a key to Amy Power because Amy was, you know, coming and going when she needed to. And we also know that Mary told her apartment manager that she lost the key. So there's nothing that definitively says how Power got the key, but obviously he, he must have taken it from his wife unbeknownst to her. So it was about a week before the murder that Mary told her apartment manager, Watson, a.k.a. Louie Lewing, that she was missing a set of her apartment keys. She told Lewing that a friend of hers who was staying had lost a set of keys in the parking lot. On the day of the stabbing, Power gave both men a diagram of the apartment building and the parking lot. He also gave them a diagram of the floor plan so that they would move quickly through Mary's home. Power also gave Coon $50 to buy gloves and knives to murder Mary. Two days after the murder, Smith and Walter Kraft Jr. Now remember, he was somebody who was charged as an accessory after the fact and again, brought into this by Smith, they threw Coon's bloody clothing into a garbage can outside of Kraft's apartment. Over the next three weeks, Coon and Poppin asked Power nearly every night for their money. And interestingly, Kathy, mm -hmm. they never got a dime. I know. Yeah. So I also read farther on in the investigation that Poppin and Coon said that they knew he was never going to pay them. And it was something Power had actually said as part of this investigation as well. But Coon and Poppin had planned to kill him if he didn't pay them. Oh, interesting. So getting arrested may have saved his life. Yeah, seriously. Basically, in one of the Court of Appeal opinions, it said the only thing these guys got 
was 50 bucks. Which they then spent to buy knives and gloves and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. The investigation continued, although state's attorney Nelson said he believed all of the major players were locked up. The five men faced charges carrying penalties ranging from five years to life in prison without parole. Kuhn, Poppin, and Power could also receive the death penalty if convicted. Magistrate Judge Peter Lieberman ordered court-appointed lawyers for all five. They were held in the Minnehaha County Jail in lieu of $500,000 bonds, except for Kraft, whose bond was set at $50,000. I just love saying Minnehaha. I know. That's because you're a mini ho ho <laughs> <laughs> And she puts the hoochie in Chattahoochee. Oh. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Uh, Levity aside, prosecutors announced that they were going to seek the death penalty against Power, Kuhn, and Poppin. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Months after Mary's murder, it was revealed how the police made the connection to these five men. According to the Sioux Falls Argus Leader newspaper, three days after Mary's death, police interviewed Amy Power. Amy Power and her family contacted police saying they had urgent information. Amy told the police that her husband believed Mary was responsible for the breakup of their marriage. According to the court records, Power also believed Mary had smoked marijuana in front of his child when Amy was staying with her. Amy believed that Power's jealousy and anger over what he saw as Mary's meddling might have set events in motion that led to Mary's death. Amy's parents told police that Power was possessive and controlling, and the family was so worried about Power that when Amy's father reached out to the police to set up a meeting, he insisted on precautions including refusing to talk over the telephone and ensuring the officer came to their house in an unmarked car for fear that Power would find out they were talking to the police. Amy's family also told police that Mary's strong support emboldened Amy to stand up to her husband. Well, I also think it was because 
it was a place to stay. I mean, at one point, Amy had stayed for five days in Mary's apartment. Right. And if you have that, I mean, she had her parents, but she's not going to run back to her parents every time. No. Mary was like the safe harbor for this girl who was going through a lot of stuff with her husband. I agree. On Friday, December 15th, more than five months after Mary Ross's murder, Robert Poppin pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and agreed to testify against the four others charged in Mary's death. He faced a mandatory life sentence without parole. In exchange, the prosecutor agreed not to seek the death penalty against Poppin if he truthfully testified against the men charged with planning and executing Mary Ross's death. State's attorney Nelson said, quote, he will be putting X's on calendars one a day for the rest of his life, end quote. Kathy? This guy loved to be quoted <laughs> in the papers. <laughs> it's like, I know he sits at his desk and he's like, what can I say next to get my name in the paper? Nelson said he would continue to pursue the death penalty against Power and Coon. Poppin told Circuit Judge Gene Keene, yes, that's his name. Gene Keene. Gene Keene. Louis Lewing. Louis Lewing. <laughs> While entering his plea on Friday, that Power hired Kuhn and him to kill Mary Ross. Now, Poppin's admissions to Judge Keene included some of the facts that we've just talked about, like Power had been upset that Mary had smoked marijuana, allegedly, mm -hmm. in front of his baby, that Power had given Poppin and Kuhn $50 to buy supplies to kill Mary, loaned them his red Toyota Tercel, gave them the key to get into Mary's apartment. But Poppin also added that he was high on meth when he and Kuhn entered Mary's apartment at 4 a.m. and admitted that they repeatedly stabbed her while her infant daughter, Christian, slept in the next room. So Kathy read in the newspapers that one year after the murder, they sort of did a retrospective. And it was a really big article. And what the journalist did, and his name escapes me, but he took some pretty heinous crimes that had been committed in the community this being the primary one that he featured. And, and the theme of the article was, what is happening to our young people? And he was talking about, are we raising a generation of amoral people? And so, again, he gave an example of two girls who beat up a third girl quite viciously. He gave other examples of crimes, but a lot of the article was also, again, interlaced with what was becoming a very, very serious meth problem. And just talking about how does meth affect the minds of young people, how it anesthetizes them to other people's suffering. Poppin further admitted to the judge for his plea agreement that Mary had fought back and had been able to get out of the bedroom and into the living room before Coon and Poppin had begun stabbing her again. She collapsed on the floor and they left. Poppin said that he and Kuhn went to Power's motel room immediately after the murder, and Power asked them if Mary was dead. Poppin said that he and Kuhn both looked down at the floor at the same time and said, she's dead. Now, here's where this kind of gets interesting, Kathy. Mm -hmm. So Poppin had to... Are you telling me that we bored them to this point? A little bit, yes. I, <laughs> well, I think they liked you putting the hoochie and chattahoochie, right. but otherwise, Boring. <laughs> But Poppin had discussed a plea deal with his attorneys. Now, remember, back in the day when they were first arrested, mm -hmm. that they were ordered to each have five separate attorneys. Right. Okay. So Poppin actually had two attorneys, a man named Steve Binger and a man named Mike Hansen. And so he had talked to them about doing a possible plea agreement because he wanted to get the death penalty off the table. Okay. He wanted to just get a mandatory life sentence. 
Binger said that they reached this agreement without consulting the other four defendants' attorneys and went to the state's attorney. Poppins' attorneys didn't actually call the other defendants' attorneys until five minutes before they went to court to accept the plea deal. Okay, so basically Poppin of the five is the first to run to become like state's evidence. Correct. And the attorney. And this was a Friday. Yeah. The attorneys made a courtesy call. Hey, P.S. Nothing you can do about it now. My guy's going to plead. Bye bye. And part of the plea deal was that he was going to testify truthfully against the other four. Mm -hmm. So this was a Friday. By Monday morning, three of the other four defendants attorneys had gone to the state's attorney and said, yeah, we want the same deal. And so the state's attorney gave it to them. Sentencing for the four men who were now agreeing to plead guilty. Mm hmm was going to be postponed until after the trial of the one remaining defendant to ensure that they told the truth because the death penalty was off the table. You know, it was a quid pro quo. Mm -hmm. you know, we'll let you not have the death penalty. You've got to tell the truth. Right. So now there was one. The one remaining defendant was Michael Smith, the middleman in Mary's death, connecting Poppin and Coon with Robert Power, the man who wanted Mary dead. Smith said he wasn't interested in accepting a plea deal and wanted to go to trial instead. His defense now would be even more difficult because these other four men had agreed to testify against Smith at his trial. But I could also see him saying to himself, hey, you know what? The only thing I've done here is talk. I'm not the one who set the ball in motion. Power, obviously, is the guy who wanted Mary dead. I'm also not the guy who went into her apartment and viciously murdered her. I'm just the guy in the middle. And so they're going to say I did it and I'm going to say I'm not. And they can't carry the day because they're murderers and conspirators. Well, I understand, except for the fact that you also can't set stuff like that up either. It's a conspiracy. It doesn't mean you actually physically did any of it. I know, but that's what but I'm saying. But without him, it wouldn't have happened. I agree oh, you're just with saying you? in his mind, he's uh, thinking. Yes, but I'm it. saying like in his mind, he's thinking, I didn't kill her and I didn't plan it. And I didn't, I didn't force anyone did, to yeah, do it. And, I didn't and pay I'm not anyone. the one who wrote the diagrams. I'm not this. I'm not that. So his attorneys can impeach every single one of them. You know, like Poppin and Coon, isn't it true you were the ones who walked in and committed this vicious murder? And then to power, isn't it true you're the one who wanted her dead? Isn't it true you're the one who wrote the diagram? Isn't it true? Da, 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 da. And so you're a liar, aren't you? And you lied to the police, didn't you? So I could see him thinking that he could maybe squeak by by impugning their integrity because there was no evidence that he did anything wrong except their own words. Do you see what I'm saying? I do see what you're saying. Yeah. You're like, and I disagree exactly. with you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if it's one person saying Smith set it up. It's, it's one thing. Right. Yes. Exactly. Four people. But if there are four people saying you did this, that you were the orchestrator. It's, it's a little harder it's a to little, contradict. a little tougher to get around. Yes, definitely. While giving details to Judge Keene on their roles in the murder, each of the four men implicated Smith. As part of his plea deal, Eric Kuhn admitted that he was strung out on meth before and during the murder. And he had trouble with dates and times, but remembered being introduced to Power and Smith before the murder. Judge Keene asked Kuhn if his drug use was an excuse, and Kuhn replied, no, sir. Judge Keene then asked Kuhn if he knew why he went into the apartment that night, and Kuhn responded, it was to kill Mary Ross. 
Kuhn said Power gave them the map, the keys, the $50, and that he and Poppin drove to Kmart where they bought two pairs of gloves, two knives, cigarettes, and a frying pan. Okay, so here's why they bought the frying pan. Mm-hmm. Because Kuhn said when they were in Kmart, they realized that buying two pairs of gloves and two knives made it look like they were going to do something like, I don't know, go kill someone. Right, exactly. And so they decided to make it look like more it was, like, we're buying stuff to make a meal. And right. they were going to buy the frying pan and then give it to Poppin's girlfriend. Aww. I know. Sweetheart. Lucky girl. Exactly. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Judge Keene asked if they were aware that Mary Ross's young daughter was at the apartment, and Kuhn said no. During Kuhn's admission, he said that when he and Poppin began attacking Mary, their knives bent or broke, which was why she was able to escape the bedroom. She ran into the living room, and they got more knives from her kitchen and began stabbing her again. At some point... She was able to make a 911 call. Autopsy results indicated that Mary's 16 stab wounds covered her head, chest, abdomen, and back, and that they penetrated her lungs, liver, vertebrae, and larynx. The least involved of those charged in Mary Ross's murder was Walter Kraft Jr. Kraft admitted to the judge that he had received a bag containing Coon's bloody clothes and threw it into the garbage dump behind his apartment. Kraft said it was a plastic bag that he could not see through, and he did not know what was in the bag that he was throwing away. Nonetheless, Kraft had pled guilty. Eight months after the death of Mary Ross, trial began for middleman Michael Smith, the one remaining defendant. It took two days for them to go through jury selection. Okay. They wound up with a jury of six men and six women and two alternates. Now, Judge Keene ruled on several motions during the hearing. That would be Gene Keene? That would be Gene Keene, <laughs> including a motion that Conklin had filed for the jury to hear testimony about Smith's involvement only up to the day of Mary Ross's murder because Conklin said conspiracy involves acts of concealment after the fact. Judge Keene denied this motion. And I agree with Judge Keene's denial. I mean, you're conspiring to commit murder. It doesn't mean that you have to do acts after the death of an individual, like this person's murdered. Another motion that Smith made before trial was a motion to suppress a videotaped confession. So unbeknownst to the press and everyone behind the scenes, these police were investigating these five guys hard, you know, based on Amy Powers saying, hey, check this out. So anyway... Smith is asked to come in to the police department. He was actually at his girlfriend's house when the police came to speak with her. And they said, hey, do you want to come with us to the police station, too? You don't have to. You're not under arrest. He voluntarily comes to the police department. They ask him to give a statement when he and his girlfriend get there. So he and the girlfriend are separated. He's brought into another room. As he's going to the other room, he walks by one of the co-defendants who's sitting there. And I bet that was a tactic on their part. I'm sure it was. Anyway, so he gives a statement denying any knowledge, blah, 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 blah. Then they say, okay, thank you very much. They do not Mirandize him. Then they say, can you please hang out? We might want to take another statement from you. And he goes, yeah. So now the second statement, he is now a suspect based on what his co-defendants essentially before they were co-defendants, but you know what his fellow criminals said about him. So they bring him back into the 
interview room and they interrogate him again. But this time they Mirandize him. And so they were saying you can't use the first one because he hadn't been Mirandized. His attorneys were saying in the totality of the situation, his confession was not voluntary because the police said things like, you know, your girlfriend's dad told me that if you weren't honest, you'd never see her again. (laughs) You know, that kind of stuff. Did they also mention that his girlfriend was underage at the time? No, they did not. (laughs) Because she was. Oh, geez. she was. (laughs) So anyway, you know, the police manipulated him, but they actually put the parent on the stand who did say, yes, I told the police that he could not see my daughter if he wasn't honest. You know, and so it really wasn't a lot of manipulative tactics. But the point is the confession was admitted and he eventually appealed it. And the Court of Appeal said, hey, look, there's nothing here to show that this confession was not voluntary. And in criminal cases, they really break down the facts very, very specifically. So they said, when you were at your girlfriend's house, the officer told you you didn't have to come with to the station if you didn't want to, and that you weren't a suspect, and that you weren't under arrest, and you sat in the front seat of the police car next to the officer. And Probably because he'd never had experience you know, in the front seat before. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, yeah, exactly. But It indicated that he was not in custody because Miranda comes into play when somebody is in custody and being interrogated. But they kept telling him, you're not in custody. And before his first interview, they said, you are not under arrest. You can leave at any time. Well, and I know the police were also saying this guy wasn't a newbie to the police process either. Remember, he had felony convictions at the time as well. Exactly. this wasn't somebody who didn't know how the system worked. Right. So ultimately... On appeal, the Court of Appeal said there is nothing to indicate that this confession wasn't voluntary. So the trial court was proper in admitting it. Eric Kuhn testified at Michael Smith's trial, and he told the jury that Smith had introduced him to Robert Power. Kuhn's testimony confirmed that Smith was the one who orchestrated the murder for Power. When the prosecuting attorney asked Kuhn to describe how he and Poppin stabbed Mary Ross, Kuhn hesitated and asked if he really had to say. The prosecutor answered, yep, you really have to say. Throughout Kuhn's description, the courtroom was filled with the sound of muffled crying. That same day, Robert Power testified that he told Smith that he wanted Mary dead, and Smith brought Poppin and Kuhn to Power's motel room and said it would cost $10,000 or two pounds of meth each. Now, when Poppin took the stand, it was a whole different scenario. Now, he was the first guy... Who rolled. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) He was the first one to make a plea deal, and, you know, And he he got on the stand, Uh and he told a different story. Ooh, busted. He recanted. (laughs) So as part of his plea deal, he had told Judge Keene that Smith is the one who found him and Kuhn to commit the murder. Right. But at Smith's trial, he said he lied, that it wasn't Smith who did this. So the prosecutor asked, though, were you planning to frame an innocent man for something he didn't do? And Poppin's response was, if it kept me from the death penalty, yes. So he basically promised to tell the truth. He promised to testify against Smith. And he comes and says, Smith had nothing to do with it. I lied to the police. Exactly. So the prosecutor at this point could withdraw the plea agreement. He absolutely could. And that was supposed to be why they weren't 
being sentenced until after this trial was finished. Like, in other words, Poppin still had the sentence hanging out there in the ether. Right. And he ran the risk of the state's attorney saying, yeah, you're up for the death penalty now, buddy, because you just lied. Exactly. That's exactly it. This was also where Poppin testified that he and Kuhn had talked about if Power wasn't going to pay them, they were going to plan to kill Power. Smith's lawyer called two witnesses who were on the stand for fewer than 15 minutes and were designed to discredit the prosecution's time frame on the night of the murder. Clearly, they were ineffective because Smith wound up being convicted after the jury deliberated for five hours. Mary Ross's father, Dan, told the Associated Press that he was glad it's over. Quote, it doesn't make me feel great personally to put it behind me, but it needed to be done. Unquote. And Kath, I thought that was an interesting quote. It didn't make him feel great to put it behind him. And I'm, I'm sure it's twofold. I'm sure it's nothing about this process is good. Nothing about this process is easy. And also, you want to have your daughter be remembered and kept alive. And, and talk I, about her. Yeah, exactly. Ultimately, all of the men except Kraft were sentenced to life in prison without parole. However... The most memorable marks were made at the sentencing hearing of Poppin, Kuhn, and Power. All five of the defendants were present in the courtroom. According to the Argus Leader newspaper, journalist Carson Walker wrote that the Mary Ross murder case came to a final close on Friday, March 29th, the same way it began, with the voice of a dying woman pleading for help. Glaring at all five defendants, Judge Keene described the murder as diabolical, devilish, inhumane, ruthless, and premeditated with no pity for the victim. Keene then played the 911 call that Mary Ross had been able to make after Kuhn and Poppin mercilessly stabbed her 16 times. Mary Ross's last words on this earth to the 911 operator were, quote, I have been stabbed to death. My baby. Help me. I've been killed. I have a little baby. Please help me. End quote. Mary said all of this desperately as she made gurgling sounds from the blood in her throat. After the tape ended, Judge Keene said, quote, That was the lady you killed, gentlemen. Maybe my words will fade, but I hope you never forget her voice. She's dying in her apartment knowing she will never see her daughter again. End quote. The only two defendants who showed a response were Kuhn and Poppin, who cried after hearing the tape. Also at the hearing, letters from Mary Ross's family were read to the five defendants. Mary's sister Rebecca wrote, I feel that the most important statement of all will not be shared. That is the statement of a 22-month-old girl who, eight months ago, was awakened in the middle of the night to stand in her crib and listen to the sounds of her mother being murdered in the next room. The community rallied around Mary Ross's baby daughter, Christian. Even though Mary's mother had been granted guardianship and moved Christian to her home in Colorado, the residents of Sioux Falls expressed their compassion and support for the little girl with monetary donations. One local bar raised money by hosting a foosball tournament. National College, where Mary had been studying to be a paralegal, donated money toward Christian's college fund. On the one-year anniversary of Mary's death, 
The school said they have letters on the bulletin board about Christian and how she was doing. The school had kept in touch with Mary's mother and received pictures and letters throughout the year. Mary's grandmother, Doreen, said that Christian looks just like her mother, and Doreen feels like she's seeing Mary all over again. Thank you for listening. If you liked us... I really hope you liked us. Just recommend (laughs) us to a friend. (laughs) And follow us on our social media at Killer Destinations Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.